Mark 12, 7-12. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to, to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson, and uh, it's just so good to have you all here and good to be together this morning. Um, If you're new or you've never heard me preach, just by way of introduction, I want to make sure you all know I have a stutter, so it'll kind of come and go, uh, and just want to give you all a a heads up so you're not wondering what it is um, as we go. And um, I want to say a couple things here before we dive into it. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter uh, 11, verse 27. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. And um, if you do not have a Bible, if you can hold your hand up high, uh, somebody will get you one. Okay, You're going to want one to follow along through God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, um, you do now. This is our gift to you. We want to make sure everybody has one. And um, also, si necesitas en español, tenemos. Um, so if you prefer to read the Bible in Spanish, um, solamente siga español. Just say español and someone will get you a Bible in Spanish. Um, so uh, with that, let me, let me say even why do we say that every week? Because um, we exist for Jesus' glory and the good of Tucson. And we constantly say that God has called us to be a church not just in downtown Tucson, but a church of downtown Tucson, where we reflect the community and where we communicate God's word um, in a way that that reflects the cultural context that we're in. And so um, with that, we know that especially since the college students have come back, which we love you, we love the energy you bring, the life, um, the youth, it's, it's fun. It's good that we're right near the U of A, so we're really glad that, that you're here. And, and um, with that, though, um, that's all true. And this is not a college church, amen? Um, if, you're, if you're in college, you are probably glad to hear that. You don't want to just be a part of a church that looks like you and sounds like you and wears tight jeans like you and everything else. And um, also, if you're here and you feel like I am the oldest person here, first of all, you're not, okay? That's always the way... Um, People will say that. They'll be like, man, I came and it's a, it's a young people church. It's not, okay? So um, this church, we're, we're growing in our diversity. We want to reflect the um, ethnic and socioeconomic and generational uh, eclectic nature of God, okay? So, so with that, we're excited to be growing. Over the summer, we saw a lot of families coming in, and we're just excited about that. So um, on that note... There, um, if you've been coming, if you consider this your church, and um, I, I want to say two things to you. Uh, you belong. Okay, this is your church. You belong here. We, we, we believe in, in living life in response to Jesus in community. So this is your community. We want to invite you to be a part of this, for this to be your church. So you belong and you're needed. 
All right, as we grow, we are still a church plant. Um, We need you to volunteer to serve in all kinds of different ways. If you want to help with setup, if you play an instrument, if you do AV stuff, um, whatever it is, we want to encourage you to get involved, to make this your home and to to know that you belong and that you um, have some ownership here as well, okay? So with that, I said we're a church plant. The the last thing I want to say on that is um, uh, September 13th is our one-year anniversary, so it's a big day, uh, really excited for us. Um, if you haven't been here or you weren't here uh, the first week of September last year, then you, um, you, you missed out on, it was 105 degrees outside and 125 degrees inside because we had no AC and the principal of Stafford was here. We had fans going. It was crazy. And um, it's crazy to think of how much God has done in this last year. And so we're going to take some time on September 13th. All the kids will be in here with us. It'll be a family-wide event. We're going to party together, and it'll be fun. And we're going we're gonna to reflect on what God has done in this past year and then look forward to what he's doing in the future. So that'll be just a great time. And again, the kids will be in here. We'll have stuff for them to do. And um, we always say that the kids are more than welcome in here. If they're crying or you're a nursing mom or your kids are welcome in here, we do have a children's ministry where they're also welcome. But uh, either way, this is a a family church, okay? So it's a lot to say. We're going to get into it here pretty quickly. So let me pray. We're going to pick up in... um, Mark 11, and we're just going to walk through this together. I'm, I'm excited just to really walk kind of verse by verse through this, entering into the story, seeing Jesus really, really portraying and demonstrating his authority, and then seeing how people respond to that. Okay, and then from there, consider how might we respond to the authority of Jesus as he presents it. Okay, so let me, let me pray, ask God to lead us through our time together in his word. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, everyone who's here. Um, Thank you, as as we said, just as we look back on a year, almost a year, as a young church plant, it's it's fun to consider what you've done. Um, Lord, many new faces, the the numbers, the the diversity that's that's, that's come throughout the year in every way. Lord, we, we do pray for more. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray that you will that you will use our church um, or to impact people's lo- lo- lives, or to transform families and individuals, and even on a citywide level, Lord, we thank you that it's not all up to us that we get to partner with other churches here in town for your glory and the good of Tucson. So now, as we get into your Word together, we we confess that, um, Lord, I have nothing to say if it's not from you. And so, um, uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would really lead us through this time um, in, in our time in the Word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's just get into it right away in um, verse 27. If, if you have a, a header, you see it says the authority of Jesus challenge. They might say that. And so that's what we're going to see throughout here is Jesus presenting himself authoritatively and then people responding to that. So right away in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests... And the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? So just kind of to bring us up to speed on where we're at here in this, is um, they're coming into Jerusalem. This isn't the first time Jesus came into Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at what? The 
the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? And you, you've heard that perhaps before, but what we saw last week is it was kind of the, the counterintuitive entry of the king. He came not on a horse, not wielding a sword like other people who'd come before him had done. He came humbly on a donkey, but still authoritatively. And he came in and he cursed a tree, a fig tree, because it wasn't bearing fruit. And then he went into the temple and he threw what some people perceive as like a temper tantrum and he threw over tables and he stopped people. And what he was doing is he was, he was calling out judgment on the temple. And he was saying, no, no, your structures and the way that you go about um, relating with God is broken. You, you're using it to abuse other people, and it's not the way it's supposed to be, and I'm here to make it right. And so Jesus authoritatively judges the temple, and then he goes back with his followers out of Jerusalem, and they see this tree again, this um, fig tree, and it's all withered and decayed to the very root. And one of his followers says, Jesus, look at the tree. It's decayed. And, and that, is, that is Mark, the author, making it abundantly clear. Yeah, the judgment Jesus just gave on the temple, which, 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 which represented the way that mankind would relate with God through a broken system, through a curtain and a veil, and, and it was still defined by sin, by, by humanity individually and corporately turning away from God. That tree symbolized, yeah, that way is done. A new way is coming. It is coming. A new temple is being built upon which um, God will build His whole kingdom, His whole body. So the way that, that we relate with God and with one another will be renewed. And so that's where we are right now. So then it says that Jesus came back into Jerusalem with His followers, and they're walking in the temple, and these chief priests and scribes and elders. So Throughout Mark, we've seen other religious authorities come up to Jesus and challenge him and question him. But this is like the varsity. Okay? This, is, this is the big guns right here showing up. This is, this is in Jerusalem, the capital. Everywhere else, it's been other people, other authorities that still had power and influence where they were. But these guys are, are a part of, it's assumed, the Sanhedrin. That's a group of 70 religious authorities um, of the Jewish people, different, different factions of Judaism that come together and they serve as a, as a kind of, of a go-between, if you will, a buffer between Rome and the Jewish people. And so these guys are the big guns, okay? They roll up, like picture Reservoir Dogs, not the movie, but the poster. If you've ever seen the poster or any of these things, it has like an, like an entourage just kind of rolling up authoritatively with power. That's what's going on here. Okay, Jesus comes back in the temple. He's got a reputation, right? He's turned tables. They're like, oh, this guy came back. He's up to no good. And they know that Jesus is, is kind of bringing something with him. And as you see here, it's an authority. And so these guys roll up with their authority, with their pomp and circumstance, their robes, all this stuff, and they come up on Jesus and they're like, Jesus, why are you doing these things? They're not questioning that he has done them, okay? This is, a lot of people, well, has Jesus done this? I don't know, there's different interpretations. No, historically, it's Jesus has done these things. What are these things that they're questioning? It's not just what he just did. He just cursed the fig tree. He just cast judgment on the temple in all its grandeur. But it's, it's everything he's done up to this point. 
It's the kingdom that he's bringing. It's the fact that he has forgiven sins. He's, he's raised sick people from death. He's, he's healed sick people. He's um, cast out storms and told them to cease. He's done all these things. And they're saying, what authority do you have? And if you've been with us for the whole time through Mark, that word authority is key. Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, all the people saw Jesus teaching. They saw Jesus coming with authority. And that word authority is, is, is like the author. Okay, it means the one who is speaking and teaching from the original stuff. So it's like if you're an attorney, you, you are an authority on the law, but you have to work within a law that you've kind of inherited. But Jesus is teaching with, with such authority that it's like he, he created it. He can, he's the author of everything. And so these guys are saying, where does this authority come from? They're offended by it, but they can't ignore it, right? They can't help but recognize, Jesus, you've clearly got authority. Where does it come from? And what does Jesus do in response to them? Any of us, right, we're challenged. Just think, these guys have all the power in the world, and they come at him. And Jesus, like a boss, like he always does, just turns it. He's patient. He doesn't throw a temper tantrum. I don't know about you, but if somebody challenges me, I typically respond in kind. Someone's like, oh, you're coming up on me. I'm going to come back at you with the same, same posture, and we're going to get into this whole thing. But Jesus says, um, actually, let me ask you a question. He doesn't enter in. He doesn't play by their little games. Pick up with me in verse 29. And Jesus says to them, I will ask you a question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus doesn't enter into their little games. He doesn't have to. Again, they are coming with, just picture the scene, okay? The, the, like, picture the coolest people. These are the, the captain of the football team. These are the you know, student council president. They're, they're the cool kids. They're the cool table they're coming up and anyone else would would just be kind of back on their heels but jesus doesn't he says let me let me ask you a question and then i'll answer your question and he asks them this and what he's doing by asking them this question is he's exposing where their authority comes from he, he's challenging them to answer a question that they actually cannot answer because he's saying you answer me the baptism of john where does it come from from man or from God. Their whole authority is based upon the crowds and the people and what the people think of them. And it's based on what, they're, what they know from the Old Testament scriptures and the way they have used that to, to kind of build themselves up in their authority. But all of a sudden, Jesus calls them to give an answer that, that you have to, have to have the original stuff to answer. Like you have to be authoritative. You have to be a representative of God to really give an answer for where this kind of authority comes from and where this baptism of John has come from. And so they're stymied. Pick back up with me here. And they gather together in verse 31. They discussed it with one another. That word discuss is like, they're like, okay, hold on. And then they kind of huddle back together and they're going to talk it out together. And that word is like conniving. 
Okay, they're working on a strategy. They're strategizing together. They don't really want to know. They don't really want to learn from Jesus. They, they come when they want to put him in a corner and back him down in, in, in such a way that, that, that he will now do what they want him to do. But, but God doesn't work that way. Right? Honestly, how many of us are here today that have approached God with such a posture? God, answer me this, God. And we kind of put God on trial. And sometimes when it's coming from hurt or pain or genuine, um, authentic uh, questioning and need for an answer, God, God welcomes that. He invites us as His children to come and to knock and to ask and, and that He will give an answer. And it might not always be the answer that we want, but He will answer us. He will speak to us. But these guys are coming and they're trying to come up with some kind of philosophical acrobatics to put God in a box. Like, I actually studied philosophy here at the U of A. I know there are a lot of young people here. If you're a, a freshman, perhaps, you're going to take you know, philosophy 101 and, and you might come back and, and you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table with your parents and you throw out the question, could God create a box that's so great He could not move it? Or could there be a box that's so small that God could not fit in it? And sit back and kind of, you know, in this great posture, philosophically, oh, I've, I've duped you. I remember facing this very question, and well, the answer very simply is like, no. Okay, God doesn't play by our little games. He doesn't, he doesn't need to give an answer there. Can God create a box that's so great that he cannot move? Well, no. Because God in His divine, eternal wisdom is all-powerful, so He's not going to, He can't create something that's, that's contrary to His divine nature. So no, easy answer here. And these guys are doing the same kind of thing. They're like, oh, that's a good one. Let, me, let us conspire here together, and we'll come back at you. And, and Jesus just sits there patiently waiting, and they talk it out, and they say they, together. They say, well, um, if we say that it was from heaven, then he'll say, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Because they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So what they're saying here is, if we say that the baptism of John is from heaven, we're going to be stuck. Because the baptism of John is referring to the entire ministry of John the Baptist, which we saw in the very first chapter where John the Baptist was, was, was beloved by all the crowds and his entire ministry was focused on paving the way and turning people's eyes toward Jesus. Everything he was about, he even said, Behold the Son of God. I must decrease and he must increase. The whole, the, the, everything he was about was about platforming Jesus. It was about, it was about paving the way for the authority of Jesus to be revealed. And so these guys know... Oh, if we say that John's whole ministry was coming from heaven, man, we're, we're going to be challenged. These people are going to say, then why are you, why are you uh, arguing with Jesus so much? But if we say it's from man, the crowds are going to be mad. And we, we need the crowds to stay at bay because everything, their whole authority depended on their relationship with the masses, with the people. We'll get back to that in a bit. So I love this. How do they answer him? Verse 33. It's like Monty Python. If you've ever seen any Monty Python, I just, I picture this, like they come back, right? They huddle 
and they come back, and you, it's like one guy steps up and is like, <clears throat> we um, do not know. There you have it. And like just exposing their foolishness, exposing their lack of authority. And Jesus is like, well, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. Like, I know, know you are, but what am I? Kind of deal. But no, what Jesus is actually doing is he's exposing, look, I don't have to play your silly games. All right? I don't have to get into this little philosophical circus trick that you've created and play by your games. Any one of us would have, okay? I know I would have gotten right in there and I would have gotten into this. But these guys don't come with a posture to learn. They don't come slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to understand. But they come with anger. They, they want to expose Jesus. They want to fight with Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you. But then, as we'll see as we get into chapter 12, he does tell them. He tells a story that absolutely answers their question. So let's pick up in chapter 12. You know the drill. If you've been here with us, turn to your neighbor. Say, welcome to chapter 12. We've been, we've been marching through Mark for months and uh, we've done this. We're making our way. We're working through the book of the Bible. It's been fun. We're seeing Jesus. We're seeing who is Jesus and, and what is he doing and who are we and how do we respond to him. And then this week we're seeing what kind of authority does he come with. So like these religious authorities, we're like, where's your authority coming from, Jesus? And because of their, their, their hostile posture, Jesus is like, I'm not going to enter in. I'm not going to tell you. But for your and my sake and for the audience of this original book, Mark does go on and tell us. And Jesus does go on and answer their question in the form of a parable. Verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for the wine press. And he built a tower. And he leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So, Jesus is teaching them in parables. And if you remember, we walked through a bunch of parables of Jesus way back in Mark chapter 4. And parables are, are a form of teaching that Jesus would give contrary to popular belief. It's not an easy-to-believe metaphor. It's not like, you know, making it easier. No. The way Jesus taught parables was in such a way that people would hear and that those who really didn't want an answer, those who were really coming at Jesus with an agenda to expose him or to combat him, they would just get more and more confused. So these parables were actually taught in such a way that further revealed um, those who didn't know and didn't really want to know. But on the flip side, those who had eyes to see or ears to hear, a phrase that we've heard a lot of, those who came before Jesus, who were Yes, still confused by his authority. Yes, still intrigued by his teaching and his message. But had hearts that were softening, that God was revealing himself to. And as Jesus told these parables, they would lean in and say, can you help me understand more? So that's the purpose of these parables. And Jesus teaches in a parable. And just for fun, we need to notice here that he, he uses an agricultural parable once again he's done this a lot and it's this is just further evidence that he's in the capital right um not that i know a ton about hunger games guys keep my man card intact here but um it's like that right like he's from district 12 and he's in the capital now like he's from agricultural kind of countryville and he comes up 
into the capital, but he still uses an agricultural story while dealing with these like big authoritative capital representatives. It's kind of like you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy or whatever kind of phrase you want to use like that. I just think it's funny as I read and prepared this that, that, that Jesus doesn't, doesn't try to fit a mold. He doesn't, he doesn't try to put on a face. Right? He just authoritatively and confidently and unwaveringly approaches these people. And so he tells them this, and he talks about a vineyard. And this is used also to remind the people that in Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, one of the most, um, one of the, one of the most prophetic books, like around 500 years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah wrote a prophecy about a vineyard that would not bear fruit and that would be decaying, and that the owner of that vineyard, God, would come and would bring um, judgment on that vineyard and would, and would, and would dig it up and would, and would do work on it so that it could start producing more fruit. So Jesus basically picks up that prophecy right here as he's telling these people. And so pick up with me in, uh, in verse 3. I'm sorry, in verse 2. And then when this season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So Jesus tells a story, tells a parable. And what he's doing is he's revealing what these religious authorities are doing right there in that time. He's he's bringing them back to Isaiah chapter 5 that talks about the vineyard of God, that talks about the people of God, and how the fruit is not being born, on on how sin is still ruling and reigning, okay? Okay, pick up with me here. In the very beginning, God creates us to relate with Him, to be His people, to know Him, to, to produce fruit and all of life, to reflect Him in, in how we relate with one another and our work and everything that we do. But because we individually and corporately said, no thanks God, we want to do it on our own, we, we get into the world of brokenness and of sin and of fruitlessness and of contaminated fruit. And so that's why stories like this in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, all throughout, God has, God has told stories about, about, no, the vineyard will produce fruit once again. And, and, and God sends vine, uh, vine dressers or, or, or tenants to, to work the fields. He sent prophets time and time again to call the people back to God to expose what it meant to be the people of God. And what did they do? Just like here, time and time again, they killed them, they beat them. Isaiah was sawn in half. Jeremiah and Zechariah were thrown in prison. Zechariah was stoned. So the, the prophets that Jesus, or that God has sent, have been beaten and abused time and time again. But these religious authorities are so blind, they don't have eyes to see. They think they, they, they're waiting, they're alongside the prophets, they're waiting for, for God to do His work, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 God has been sending you people time and time again, and you've abused them, and it hasn't worked, and you haven't respected the authority of God. So this is to, to call out these religious authorities right there, He's saying, no, you're not ready for the work that God has promised to do. In fact, you've been getting in the way of it all along. 
It's broken. It's fruitless. And then pick up with the story that Jesus is telling these, the parable that he's telling these people in verse 6. He says this about the, the owner of the land. He still had one other, a beloved son. That word beloved means only. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard. So Jesus is telling this story to these people. And he's revealing his authority. He is prophesying. He is declaring who he is and what he has come to do. And in so doing, he is calling out, he is indicting these religious authorities, the whole religious structure that is built upon. But they still don't have ears to hear. They still don't have eyes to see. They're offended. And so as we look at this, as many have, let us pause for a second and consider Some of us might be thinking, if you're entering into the story, you're saying, why did this owner of this land send his son? Is that some have called the idea that God the Father would send his only son to die on the cross divine child abuse? Why would the Father do that? That's so cruel. That's so... Why would he do that? Well, he did it purposefully. He's not responding. He doesn't enter in and play by these little games. No, it's because prophets sent time and time again mere employees of the land coming time and time again to to collect the fruit, to bring the work of God, are not respected. They don't have the authority that is needed to make new what has been broken. So Almighty God says this mess that my creation is in cannot be fixed through mere human effort. Through broken, sinful people trying to fix broken, sinful systems that are abusing broken and sinful people. In fact, I need to send my beloved son, my only son, with the authority that only God has to come and to make new what has been broken, to come and to proclaim and win back what is rightfully God's. And so that's what this story that Jesus is telling about. And so for you and me right now, if you're here today like these people, if you have eyes to see, if you have ears to hear, if you're coming before Jesus and wondering, what is this authority that you have that all throughout Mark we have been presented with and we have been challenged to respond in faith and to follow Jesus, to become disciples, followers of Jesus, The the message to you is this. God loves you so much. God has so much authority. He is so committed to His plan and to His promise to care for His fruitless vineyard that He sent His only Son to die for you. We say this verse often, and I hope you you hear it and it just bounces off. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where we hear that God demonstrates His love for us. And that while we're yet sinners, enemies of God, like this, like these, these, these vineyard tenants, He sent His Son to die for us. That's how God demonstrates His love for us. So if you're wondering, does God really love me? If you're wondering and you're reading this, does God really have authority? Yeah, He does. 
And he, and he willingly sent that authority to die for you. To make new what has been broken. To bring fruit where there has been fruitlessness. And it could come in no other way. No prophet could do that. No religious system could do that. No temple, no matter how great and, 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 and grandiose it was. And believe me, this temple, the very place that is the place where Jesus is proclaiming His authority in counterintuitive ways is in this great temple that had a huge curtain and was like multiple football fields wide. I mean, acres and acres. This is massive. And Jesus is saying, this won't do. It's too ugly. It's too broken. It's too abusive. And the authority of these religious authorities, the authority of man over other men and women, it won't do. It won't suffice. No, we need the authority of God. The author, the original stuff. The one who said, let there be light. The one who said, uh, uh, I create you in my image. Be fruitful and multiply. Live all of your life to reflect me. That God needs to enter in to make new what has been broken. But these, these religious authorities didn't have ears to hear. In fact, they, they, they're, they're offended. They're angered. Because like every one of us in this room, look at me. Authority is offensive to you because you are a sinful, broken person like me. Because of sin, because of the fall, our natural condition, our, 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 our broken, fallen condition is not to ever want to fall under the supreme authority of God. In fact, our natural disposition is to be offended by it. And yet, in His grace... He reveals Jesus. He reveals a, a sacrificing, loving, confident, unwavering kind of authority. And one author that I love, Paul Tripp, just to get at it a little more, writes this about our natural disposition toward authority. He says this, I think we misunderstand both true freedom and, and debilitating bondage. Because we all want to be the authority. Our natural disposition is to say, No, God, you're the authority, but I want to be the authority. I want to get you out of the way so I can be king. All of life would be right if only I could have things the way I think they ought to be. Right? Amen? Come on. Am I alone in here? Do we agree on this? Is that where you're at this morning? Is that your, your general disposition toward life? So Paul Tripp goes on and says this, Freedom that fills and satisfies your heart is never found in setting yourself up as your own authority. True freedom is not found in doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. True freedom is never found in putting yourself in the middle of your world and making it all about you. Oh, but isn't that the way we go about our day every day? Honking our horn. Traffic should be the way I want it to be. People should respond to me the way I want them to respond to me. My, my employer should treat me the way I think he or she should treat me. My kids should respond to me the way I think they should respond to me. I, I relate with this so much because so often my anger in, in my household and in traffic and my, my general disposition toward other people is because they're not recognizing the authority that is me that would make the world a better place. And yet, that's the last place we need to be. 
When you attempt to do these things, you never enjoy freedom. You only end up in another form of bondage. Anyone who has who experienced anger that you just cannot control, and time and time again you say, I'm so sorry, next time it'll be different. Anyone in here who's ever experienced a kind of a, a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction or whatever it might be, that you think, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. No, that's a time of bondage. Whatever it is that you, are, that you think you have the freedom to control is actually putting the very handcuffs around you that you think you're now free to do whatever you want. But instead, you're actually in debilitating bondage, as he says. And then he says this, here is the point. You and I always exist under some kind of authority. But none of us is wise enough, strong enough, faithful enough, or righteous enough to rule ourselves well. I love this. We are no more hardwired to rule our own lives than a beagle is hardwired to live in a water-filled aquarium. Self-rule never leads anywhere good. Picture that, a beagle. You walk into someone's house and they've got a big fish aquarium and there's a beagle in there just struggling. You are no more equipped to rule your own life than a wiener dog that is submerged in a water-filled tank, struggling. That's your and my ability to have authority that we so long for. And God, in his great love, doesn't leave us there. He doesn't give us what we want. He doesn't enter in to play our little games. Because he knows that what we need, what we were created for, was to live under his kind of authority. And then to explain it a bit more, Jesus goes on. And he quotes in verse 10, he picks up and he quotes Psalm 118. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Yeah, you think? So they left him and went away. So what does all this mean? Jesus tells another story. He quotes a song. He quotes Psalm 118, one that these people would be familiar with. Again, Jesus is not the way they think he's supposed to be. The king is triumphantly coming to Jerusalem, not on a horse, but on a donkey. Not wielding a sword, but proclaiming a message of a kingdom that is just completely upside down and saying, the king is coming and is going to bring his kingdom by dying. The king has come not to clear out the temple of the sinful, wicked, dirty Gentiles, but he's coming to clear out the temple and in fact to tear it down and build a new temple, not, not against the Gentiles, but for the Gentiles, as we saw last week. Jesus is coming and is, 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 is bringing judgment, not to completely get rid of this vineyard, but to bring his authoritative rule and to give it to rulers and overseers who will rightly point to the good owner of the field, that will rightly turn eyes to the authority of God that Jesus is bringing. And it's counterintuitive, and these people don't get it because they, he, they speak of a stone as if they're building, like you and me, building a kingdom. And we look at this rock, and they're like, ah, oh, that rock doesn't seem very pretty. It doesn't look the way it probably should. We should get rid of it. And Jesus says, no, 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 that rock, that, that's me. 
upon that rock, the entire temple, the entire place, the entire way that God will come face to face with people is here. And it's not the way you think it's supposed to look. So you need to recognize that your own effort to be an authority is getting in your way of seeing the very good news that God is bringing for you to shape your life around. And they don't like it one bit. They, they perceive rightly. This is where Jesus basically seals his fate in what we've just read. From this point on, the religious authorities understand they have been outed and exposed. Jesus has just, has just backed them into a corner and he didn't do it accidentally. Just like God didn't send his son accidentally, not knowing he would be sent. No, he authoritatively and unwaveringly comes to make new what has been broken by laying down his life so that his kingdom can be built. Not in ways that we would build it, not like on the sand or in different ways that when hardship comes, when the wind blows, it would fall apart. But no, his foundation is such that when the wind comes and the floods raise and the, wind and the waters pour out, it will not be moved. And in contrast to these religious authorities, we see Jesus' authority. These religious authorities, they want nothing more than to take Jesus out right there. Oh no, you didn't. You're, that's it. You're, anyone else who said this, they would have taken down right there. Jesus just called them out, but they're afraid because the crowds are there and the crowds are enamored. And because their authority is so shallow, they abuse the crowds and yet they're dependent upon the crowds. They don't lead the crowds, they're actually led by the crowds, but they do it in such a way that so many authorities today lead abusive for self-exaltation Abusing the crowds, but not really hating the people anywhere. But Jesus, in contrast, unwaveringly gives the hard truth that you and I need to hear. He exposes our ridiculous effort to hold on to our own authority. And like that author said, he exposes that we're like beagles floundering in water-filled aquariums. And he doesn't just leave us there. But as we've been faced with time and time again, Jesus presents his authority, not like these religious authorities, but an authority that lays his life down to actually lead us somewhere, to actually bring in his perfect kingdom. This is good news. And we're faced with the question as we close, how do you respond to Jesus' authority? Are you offended by it? Are you confused by it? Are you, are you angered? If you have questions, if you're starting to see, you're starting to understand, but you're still not quite so sure, he invites you to move forward, to move in, to ask more questions. How do you respond to this self-giving, loving, yet unwavering authority of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we do recognize that... Um, you don't do things the way we think you should. What you're doing in our lives, I don't know every individual story in here right now, but I know a lot of people are probably wondering 
what you're doing, if you're in control. And yet, Lord, we also confess that so often we come. Lord, we try to back you into a corner. We try to, we, we try to force you to respond to our authority the way we think you should. And yet, through your word, you lovingly and yet, in some ways, very difficultly expose our broken posture toward you. And Lord, for anyone here that's in a, in a position of authority over others, Lord, we also recognize our broken posture toward others. Lord, our tendency is to want to make it all about us, is to want to make everything operate smoothly according to our will and our plans. And yet in you we see an authority that is loving, self-sacrificing, and yet unwavering, and, and, and completely consistent in taking us somewhere good. So as we respond, as we seek to be your church, as we look for the coming of your perfect kingdom, Lord, we, we, we pray that, that you will enable us to respond rightly to you in faith, in worship, in gladness, in humility, in confession, and in hope. And we pray all this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.